Hi, this is Laura Camacho, and welcome to the Speak Up podcast, where we talk about conversations. And today, I have someone that I have admired for a long time. Actually, my mom uh, introduced me to her online probably two or three years ago. Her name is Dr. Carrie Gress. Her PhD is in philosophy. So you can tell that she's quite the brainiac. And she also is a businesswoman. She's also a mother of five. And she's also the author of many books, but she has two that she co-authored uh, with some other people that have, this is just like a brand new genre of book. And it's the, they're called Theology of Home. There's the one that came out, I think, a year and a half ago, and then one that just came out. And it really talks about the home and how important home is. And during this year of COVID, we've all spent a lot more time at home than we usually do. And actually, I, I did buy the book. I have both of those books and reading them. And it, it was really a lovely like celebration of how important home is. But the reason I asked Carrie to speak, to be my special guest on this podcast that's for a business audience is because having read her books, I know that she is such a good communicator and she is really skilled at having the conversation about things when people don't really want to talk about it. And, you know, she, as she's going to tell us her way of explaining something or talking about something so that people will listen, even if they think they don't want to hear from you or they think they already know what you're going to say or your topic is just not something they're interested in. We've all been in that situation. So, Carrie, tell me about your path to writing Theology of, of Home, and then tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I will, but thank you so much for having me on your show. It's, it's lovely to join you this afternoon. Um, I, my journey has, has been a really long one. Um, I, I, first of all, I never thought that I could write, so I, I still marvel at the fact that I have all these books that I've written because it was just a skill that I didn't think I had, and um, yet over time was, I was able to develop it sufficiently so that I could actually write books. But um, I started, I grew up in Oregon, um, very kind of secular environment. I was raised um, very nominally Catholic, and then at a certain point, largely around college, um, my faith became a lot more important to me. And at that point, I started really diving into the intellectual life. I was really fascinated by kind of the history of the church. In fact, my, my degree at the University of Oregon was in history. And um, at that stage, I just started paying attention to, you know, there's this 2,000 years of, of intellectual history in the Catholic church that I, I really found fascinating. And so often you don't hear about that tradition within the church, and yet we can still see you know, evidence of it. In fact, I've been kind of marveling at the fact that we've got six of our nine Supreme Court justices are, are Catholic. Um, you know, it's not really an accident. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that um, there is this incredible tradition of intellectual thought. And um, you know, even the, the recent Amy Coney Barrett um, uh, hearings were, were fascinating because you could see that the, you know this woman was very well formed in terms of logic and reason and um, that was really apparent and I, I think throughout that hearing so that was really what I started to, to dive into and of course um, just grew deeper in uh, in the faith and you know it was fascinating because of course I wanted my family members to to love the faith that we had kind of been raised with but they didn't really em embrace it very deeply and um, 
they all thought that I had joined a cult. Um, so that was a fascinating um, stage to go through. But, uh, you know, through that experience, I really learned how to, to be a better friend and a better daughter and sister and um, really love them and, and come to this place where they could trust me. And I think that that's one of the key lessons I learned in communication was this trust element. Um, in addition to the fact that, you know, we obviously need to know what we're talking about. But, uh, you know, I spent years formu- forming my mind and, you know, reading philosophy. Um, I, I finished my PhD. I actually wrote on human rights um, for my dissertation, um, only to really come to find out that, you know, you can have the best arguments in the world, but if you don't have a way to tell people what those arguments in a way that they can hear you, it, it doesn't really matter. Um, and so that was kind of the lesson I had to go through, you know, come around full circle was really start to see that you have to be able to reach your listener in a way that they can hear you. And you also have to, that means knowing your audience as well. So there's all these different factors that go along with it. But I think, again, it came back to this idea of, of trust and of friendships, but also storytelling. Um, so those are really the pieces that I, I think I picked up along the way that I've, um, I'm trying to do, particularly with women now. Um, and this, these books that um, my co-author, Noel Maring, and I have written, um, Theology of Home and then Theology of Home too really looked at this issue of uh, womanhood and, and, you know, we see this explosion of interest in the home. And this is obviously even before COVID, we've got all these um, DIY channel and HGTV. And, um, but at the same time, it's great if you can, you know, spend all this time and money on your home. But if you say publicly, you know, I'm a homemaker there, there's, nobody embraces that idea. And so we really wanted to sort of look at this idea of why is it that we love our home so much? Um, So in the first book, we really dove into that, um, what it is we love about our homes and not just the, the, um, how to decorate our homes, but the why behind it and what it is that, that our homes are supposed to be doing. And in many respects, they really are meant to be this sanctuary, this place of um, where we're nourished, where we're, we become known for who we are, um, where we feel safe, where we feel, you know, comfortable and restored. And then in the second one, we really dove into this question of, you know, why is it so taboo to mention the word homemaker? And what does that mean? You know, and, and I think that that's kind of the missing piece is it's one thing to have just a stunning home. It looks like it's, you know, well curated and you've had designers spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on it. But if you don't have someone to help make it an actual home, then there's going to always be something missing. It's going to feel very sterile and it's not going to have all of those pieces that we really want in a home, which again are those intangibles that that come from um, being fed and loved by other people, um, nourished by other people, cared for by other people. So um, that was the other piece that we really wanted to look at in it. So um, yeah, it's been kind of a long journey and it's had a lot of different facets to it, but it's been fun to dive into this issue of, of home and find a place where like this topic resonates, I think with almost everybody, because either you have a home or if you don't have a home, it's a tragedy and people want to, you know, we all have a sense of what a home should be. So I think it's a universal place that um, we can really sort of connect with people on in these different areas and, and, and create relationship and a sense of trust and then kind of move on to other object or other ideas beyond that. I love that. It's so true that the, that the home is so important. And I don't, I, I've been like this monkey with a sharp pencil playing with LinkedIn polls and mm-hmm. two. I mean, one question I asked a few days ago was, would you 
now that we've all been working from home for eight months, huge paradigm shift. A lot of people thought they couldn't work from home Mm -hmm. and be productive. And now the companies are seeing that, yes, people can be productive. So I asked the three questions were, what would be your ideal? Almost all working from home was option A. B was mostly working from the office. And C was uh, roughly half and half. And I'm just going to give rough estimates of the, of the answers. I don't remember exactly. I didn't think I was going to pull this in, but it was like maybe 60% want to mostly work from home and 35% want half and half. And then like, there's one person who wants to go back to the office. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's so I, I think, I think that our homes, now that we work from them more, are, are going to get more attention. I think that's mm-hmm. a positive, uh, mm-hmm. positive switch or change of focus. Yeah. Well, um, and it's also interesting even to see the data. There was a great study at the um, Institute for Family Studies this past week that came out that was talking about teenagers, um, how much they're actually flourishing under under the lockdowns because they are having more time with family. They're probably spending, you know, less time doing things that are distracting them from schoolwork or whatever. I mean, obviously there's a socialization element, but at the same time, if socialization isn't always a positive thing in a dynamic, then being socialized with your own family could be a plus. And it seems like that's playing itself out too. So it's interesting to see these, um, you know, to have this study that obviously nobody could have, you know, replicated that we've, we've been living through um, and just seeing what the different fruit of it is. It's fascinating. It, it is. And also, uh, just on this, along the same vein, I interviewed, it was like my, um, somebody I really admired, the company Eat Big Fish, and they're based in London. And I interviewed one of the principals. And he was saying, this is back probably in May, that even our concept of what is professional has changed. Mm-hmm. And he gave the example of his having a meeting with a, like a vice president of some company. And it was a woman with a baby and they're having a business conversation while she's holding her baby and comforting mm-hmm. her baby. And I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again, we're, we're in a, it, it, we're in the middle of it. So we don't see it all clearly, but definitely mm-hmm. we see signs of, yeah moving towards home and and that's where probably our most co- important really conversations happen mm-hmm. well and i think too that the uh, there's a sociologist um bradford wilcox down at the university of virginia and he's done a lot of studies too in particular about women and you know he says one of the things that the, the happiest women report being those who are able to be home but they have some kind of work outside of the home um whether it's their work in an office or they are just doing work that, that, you know, involves being interacting with others outside the home. So it's interesting to kind of match that up a little bit with what you found in the polling and see that there's, there's something to that, you know, this idea that we can work 50, 60, 70 hours in an office. Yes, it is interesting. And uh, on, on the topic of conversations, you know, I am convinced and I, and I think you wrote something like this, in one of your books, I'm going to send a quote. I think I'm quoting you, but I'm not sure. But <laughs> a conversation has the potential to change other people and it has the potential to change ourselves. Mm-hmm. So tell me, um, does that, what, give me an example. Tell me a story. Talk to me about this. Yeah. 
You know, I think it's interesting. We, again, coming at this from this, this perspective where I had a sense that we could really just logically compel people to think differently. If we just had kind of the right syllogism or if we made the right argument, or if we showed the right text from Aristotle or something, um, you know, that's where it was a, a real starting place. And then, um, as soon as I found very quickly that that was really ineffective um, in terms of, of helping family members, even helping them with problems. You know, it was one of those things that I found that my gifts of listening were far more important. I love, of course, you know, this is older than Hills, but um, that idea of asking questions um, and really probing people for, for answers. And I, I think a lot of times because we're used to the sort of thinking that we already know how people are going to respond to things or thinking we already know how we're going to respond to things. It's always interesting when somebody does ask you a question because you have to sort of think through your thoughts. In fact, there's a lot of writers that I, I know and, and love um, that will say, well, you know, I don't know what I really think about that. Let me go write about it. They really have to process their thoughts through, through writing. Um, but even being asked a question can help do that and draw us out and, and make us realize like, you know, maybe I don't have a fully formed reason for believing this. It's just something that's sort of been in the, the zeitgeist and I've just sort of grabbed onto it and, but maybe I'm mistaken about that. Um, and I think the other thing that's interesting too, is even, um, you know, the, the act of listening to someone and being present to them can go so much further than, um, really anything. I mean, there, there's just something very compelling about being present to somebody and listening to them, even if you don't agree with them and allowing them to sort of let, let you know what they're thinking about and, and probing into that. So, and I certainly see that as a mom um, with my own children and trying to connect with them in different ways. And, you know, as moms, we're asking lots of seemingly silly questions at different points, but we're trying to sort of find ways to dig deeper and connect with them. And sometimes it works and sometimes it, it certainly doesn't. Um, but I think that this is, this is something that we do in all of our lives and relationships because we, we do like to talk about ourselves and we, it's, it can be also a way to discover others, but self-discovery um, as well. And I, I think oftentimes we sometimes will find that we agree with people more on things than we think we agree with. And and anyway, I just think conversations, especially one-on-one, -on -one, are are really powerful. And probably, if we had more of them, um, our relationships would be a lot thicker and and richer. Um, but there's a lot of of life that can be given to the other person through that. And again, not just by telling people what we know, but also asking questions and really engaging them. Um, you know, the way Socrates did. But also, you know, look at scripture. Um, look at the Bible. Every um, in the book of in the Gospel of Matthew, in particular, almost every um, chapter has Jesus asking a question. Um, so it's really interesting. We usually think of him as using parables um, as teaching tools and not questions, and yet those are really really prevalent in in his teaching as well. Oh, that's that's so. I hadn't thought about that myself, but mm -hmm. yeah, questions are just so powerful. And, and the thing is, if you're going to ask questions, you also have to be able to answer them. So it, yeah. it, it's something you can't just, it's, it plays both ways. If you're going to ask a provocative question, you need to be able right. uh, to, to answer, to answer it also. And you're, I think that that listening, that attention that we just crave that being heard. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people feel that they are not heard at work. And I guess, I mean, of course, that 
if you don't feel heard at work, you probably don't feel heard at home. And do you have any experience in dealing with that um, problem? And yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a, a problem that all of us face at different stages in our life. Um, I the most poignant one, of course, is is when I was finishing up my uh, doctorate and I was pregnant and um, I just got married and was expecting a baby and um, I was discouraged from from finishing because people say, oh well, you're gonna you're having a baby, you'll never finish your dissertation. And um, you know, it was that that I just uh, I first of all realized, okay, this I just need to like, embrace this sort of underdog. This underdog position that I'm in, um, and I'm, I feel like that really did motivate me to get it done because it was just, you know, it sort of set this goal that apparently is very difficult to achieve, and it is. It's, it was, it was no picnic. Certainly, um, I actually worked on my dissertation when I was in labor um, with oh my, my, my third child. Yeah, um, I was induced, so I, um, I was able to work on it in the hospital. But I think that that's one of those things though too is just having a sense of mission um and i knew i needed to finish this this dissertation and i knew that even if nobody thought that i was going to do it or what i would have to say was worthwhile or whatever um that it it just had to be done for for my sake and and for the sake of just finishing it and just you know getting it out of my life really to a certain degree and so kind of that underdog personality um or underdog position that I was put in. Um, but it, it didn't make, you know, I mean, I had different avenues. One of them would be certainly to, to sue, which of course I was not going to do. I wanted the degree much more than I wanted, um, you know, financial reward or something. But I think that it's, it made me realize what was important, but also a sense of, you know, I'm not doing this for anybody else. I'm doing this because I feel like this is a mission. This is an important piece that has been put in my life that I want to finish. And so it, it didn't really matter at that point. Um, you know, having the naysayers, like I said, it was just ended up giving me the right kind of motivation to finish instead of, you know, waffling for another decade, I think, on the on the topic, which I certainly could have done. I mean, it was there was really, you know, it had already been 10 years. So, it, oh. it you know, people draw these things out for forever. Um, so I was really anxious to to finish it. So, yeah, I think it's it can be hard when you feel like you're you're not heard or, or people don't want to hear what you're, what you're saying. Um, but I guess that's when we also have to pivot to um, where, you know, in that situation, I knew discussing it wasn't going to make what was really going to prove my point was actually finishing it. Um, but I know now in the work that I do um, addressed at women, I know that trying to make logical arguments is not what's going to appeal to our audience. I had to find a different way to do that. I had to find this place where I could talk to people about things and do it in such a way that made them think about things in a different light um, or in a new way. And again, that we did that with home. Um, but I even have relatives that, um, that, you know, my brother and I actually talk about trying to find topics that we can talk to them about at Christmas because we have very little in common with them. And so we just think, you know, what are these topics that we can bring up at the, at the dinner table? And it's usually great things like, barbecue and whatnot. Um, but I think that those are important to be mindful of in all of our relationships, that it's, it, this isn't um, a matter of just sort of um, trying to just pass the time, but how do we get to know people on their own terms in ways that they can understand and feel engaged and loved and heard instead of just what we're interested in. And usually, you know, like I said, that's a great thing about the, the rise of the home industry and also even the food industry and all of this is it seems a lot easier to find topics that we can talk about 
with people that they can get excited about because they bake or cook or, you know, they're interested in their home or travel. Right. Or common ground. I have to give a, a public service announcement because <laughs> you just made me think I'm uh, finalizing my holiday conversation starters just for that situation. <laughs> but actually it came from a, started from a place of like, so you don't have to hear the same old stories or get mm -hmm. into the same old arguments or talk about right. the football game. And I have, I think, 20 that are designed for multi-generation, like mm -hmm. not, not the work environment. So I'll send them to you and you can. Oh, that's brilliant. Please do. Because uh, yeah, I, uh, those are not made readily available enough and it's, I'd love to hear what you've put together. So that's, that's fantastic. Yes. Well, that's a, somebody that is, you know, a I call myself a recovering awkward person, although not, <laughs> not even that recovering. But, oh, stop. Oh, stop. <laughs> uh, how to come up with interesting conversations. So um, yeah, that, you kind of answered the, the next question I was going to ask you about, you know, when we have these topics that people don't want to hear. So mm -hmm. I've just to sum it up, you would say, you know, make sure you're listening to your audience. Mm -hmm. um, think about if you can formulate questions, provocative questions, unexpected questions. And that's really a mm -hmm. gift. If you can change someone's perspective or that, let's say you don't even change their perspective, but you just cause them to think about it in a different way. What a gift you've given a person, don't you think? No, I, I do think it is. I think, um, you know, our culture is, is really oppressive in, a, in certain respects in terms of just a, a group think that's sort of imposed upon us. Um, by elite culture. And I, I've written about that extensively, actually, in, in one of my books, um, especially for, for women. So, and, and as a result of it, we have a lot of women who are incredibly unhappy. So I, I think that there is so much that we can do um, to help women in general, but of course, all people be happier and, and have thicker relationships and healthier relationships. And, and um, the, those are kind of the essentials that we need, I think, um, in, in terms of you know, looking at what really makes people happy and having a sense of mission and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, I think, and it, you know, it's even funny to think about some of the things that I'm, I'm working on. I mean, there's nothing more unpopular in the culture than um, having a large family and, um, or having a lot, a lot being open to life and having a lot of kids. And so it's interesting to me, you know, this is a very hard place to have a conversation from to certain, in a certain respect, because people already have formulated opinions about it. But there, if you dig even slightly beneath the surface, they're really not well-formed opinions. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that's been most interesting about it is sort of you get this knee-jerk reaction, but then when people get to know you. In fact, um, one of my co-authors said that she went to an event in San Francisco, um, and it was at a law firm. And one of the women there said, um, would you have children? And she said, yeah, I have, I have six children. And um, the woman looked at her and just kind of looked her up and down, and she said, but you look so normal, um, you know, and I, I think that that's kind of the attitude that if you have a lot of children, that there must be something awkward and, uh, you know, wrong with you. Um, so it, it is, it's interesting. And I think fascinating to then even start digging beneath the surface and say, well, what, what are women meant to be in the first place? And I think we have gotten very confused about that. So it's been, I think really a rewarding and refreshing to a lot of women to start thinking about themselves differently than merely this competition with men that we sort of feel in the workplace. Um, but instead to think about what are the specific gifts that I have that I can contribute to others um, and contribute to a business in a, in a unique way rather than feeling like I always am competing with others.
Oh, that's so, so much more helpful, refreshing to, to think about it that way of that you right. don't have to, to be something that you're not. Mm -hmm. And, um, Oh, how did you get into philosophy, Carrie? <laughs> That's yes, a PhD in philosophy question. is like, not, doesn't sound very pleasant to me. <laughs> You know, and actually, that's a great point. I think that the funny thing is, is that, um, you know, philosophy has just done a terrible service to itself in, um, in the last hundred years, really. I think analytic philosophy has sort of taken over and people don't really know what philosophy is um, because of this, because we always think of it in very mechanical terms. And yet, you know, if you go back a few centuries, even before the Enlightenment, there's so much wonderful stuff that you know you could just you could spend years just reading aristotle or thomas aquinas or duns scotus or um you know the, there's they have a richness to them that i think we don't think of in as this sterile environment of philosophy that we've um created but i'm I, you know it's a great question i don't know exactly i i think because i loved history so much and I just kept wanting more. And, you know, you get to a certain point where you understand the dates and the, the wars and the battles and the divorces and the beheadings and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you want to know more why. Why were people doing this and the trends? And, you know, it's very interesting to just even see the way that philosophy tends to work itself out into um, the culture and into, into history. It's sort of layered into it. Um, part of like the tapestry of history. So I think that that's really where my interest came from it was was sort of asking these questions that weren't weren't in the dates and the the details they wanted to, to know the you know the why was this happening um what compelled these people to make this decision as a culture and move them to do x y and z so um yeah I, I think that philosophy has a lot of work to do to sort of repair its reputation because there's so much more there that's that's really fascinating um than what first meets the eye yes i i just I, yes, definitely. It's got, it's given itself a bad reputation because mm -hmm. I see I, my, I took one philosophy class was not my favorite class in, yeah. um, needs, uh, rebranding. It, it totally does. And you know, that's the funny thing is it it's, I think maybe I could probably count on one hand, the number of people that I've said, well, I have a degree in or PhD in philosophy who've actually been able to engage with me in a conversation. I, I one of my favorite memories is I was getting my hair cut and um, I think I was just finishing my degree and the, the hairdresser said, um, so what are you studying? And so I told him and then right after I said philosophy, there was this long pause. And then he said, can you believe that Lindsay Lohan dyed her hair? And you know, it was one of these <laughs> funny things where I, I didn't, I think I didn't even know who Lindsay Lohan was at that point either. I think it was so deep in my books that it wasn't even something that was relevant to my life. But Anyway, it was just this funny, like this man is really struggling to like change the conversation as quickly <laughs> as he can. So um, anyway, but I, yeah, it's, I, so I think that there's philosophy, hopefully will rebrand itself. I don't see it happening anytime soon, but, um, but I think that there's, there's a lot to be said for in terms of just what the beauty of it and, and, uh, you know, the richness that it has to offer us. Yes. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about uh, how, you know, you have a busy, you're super busy and we're so appreciative that you uh, are sharing this time with us. Do you, what do you do when you feel uninspired when you, because with, you know, five kids at home and a business and COVID not being able to get out as much, like mm -hmm. what has been your approach to, 
dealing with everybody being at home, that may not mm-hmm. have been as much of a challenge, but I, you yeah. know, definitely you have a lot on your plate. So mm-hmm. tell us, how do you stay inspired? You know, I, well, I do. I mean, it's actually been interesting. Uh, people have, I know people's cha- lives have changed dramatically in this past year. Um, my life hasn't actually changed all that much. I had a baby right before the lockdown. And um, so it was actually kind of perfect timing because my husband was able to stay home with our family. Um, but there was still, you know, I had a book due and we had to figure out how to do workout pictures around, uh, you know, travel bans and all this kind of stuff that was happening. Um, so, but I think that the, the great thing is, is that I do have at my fingertips, you know, just even looking next to me, I have a stack of books and of things that I'm just dying to sit down and read. Um, I get a lot of inspiration from that, but I'm also really, I, you know, I've really shifted my efforts to trying to, to fill this kind of marketing gap for Catholic products. I think we have the kind of this sense that, you know, Catholics don't really buy things or if they do, it's from China and it's sort of Jesus junk. It's got to be very cheap and inexpensive, or you have higher end liturgical things, but there's nothing really in between. And um, so, and my father was actually a wholesaler. So I sort of grew up with this idea of merchandising. In fact, when I was five, um, my grandmother asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I said, I wanted to be a customer. Um, so <laughs> I, I've kind of always had this, this merchandising bug, but it was always, you know, I lived in Europe and lived in France and Italy and Poland. And all the while that I lived there, I just was always fascinated by this religious art and the beauty that they had available. But a lot of it is very inaccessible to normal people. You know, you're not going to spend $5,000 on an icon um, if you're a student. So, so I've been really intrigued by this idea of how do we bring this beauty into our homes and into our daily lives and and, into just even home goods um, in a way that I think people kind of find compelling and, and beautiful and, and kind of not even just not, not so trendy. You know, these are things that we can keep in our homes for decades and that can be passed down sort of heirloom quality things, but don't, don't cost a mint. And um, so that's been one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time doing. And we've had, I've had all kinds of people just show up on my radar that have been, it's been really interesting to work with them. I'm working with a designer on a a signet ring who lives in Florida. And um, I have a piece, a plaster relief that I bought in Rome. It was actually a wedding gift for us, but I, 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 it was from the shop that I walked by every day. And I probably walked by it every day for a year. And then one day I walked in there and it was like this mom and pop business that they made, you know, it's probably been around for 200 years and it was super dusty and a mess. Um, but they had these gorgeous reliefs that they made, um, largely for dining room ceilings and things like that. Um, and I bought this piece of the Madonna, um, with Jesus and, and St. John as a little boy. And, um, it's just gorgeous. And so we're having somebody make those for us and we're going to start selling those. Um, so anyway, it's, it's been really fun to sort of start dreaming about these things and, seeing where the hole is in the market, because again, um, we got a lot of Jesus junk coming from China um, or stuff that just doesn't feel, you know, felt banners, all of that kind of stuff doesn't feel <laughs> compelling. So yeah, trying to help the, the, the church kind of rebrand itself in a certain respect, because these things are very malleable. I mean, the, the church has been the greatest patron of the arts in the history of the world. And, you know, you didn't have sure you can go to St. Peter's and buy, you know, an ashtray with St. Peter's on it, but that's, that only goes so far. I think we're, we're really thirsty for beauty in our lives. And so trying to find beauty that also isn't trendy, but that kind of has a, a deeper meaning um, that can be a family heirloom, I think it goes a long way. So 
that's how I've been spending my time. It's been, it's been actually delightful um, to, to think of all these things. It is. Well, I am so glad that you are because I have benefited uh, from <laughs> your candles. Keep us oh, going. Yes. They smell so good and look so thank pretty. Oh, so just as a final question, you know, just if there's someone in the audience, because my audience are tend to be very smart, high performing people at work that sometimes feel just like they don't fit in or mm -hmm. a little bit overlooked. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, what would you say? What's your communication advice or your being advice or listening mm -hmm. or question advice yeah. to these? Yeah. And then tell them how to, where to find theology of hope. Um, you know, I think that's a great question. Um, one of the, the, the key things though really is figuring out how, what, what the people around you, what they're going to listen to the most. Um, and a lot of times that means saying less. Um, we are, we have a very kind of outspoken culture and I think we all feel like we have to say a lot and really have a lot of face time and be present in order for people to, to hear us. Um, and yeah, that, that's, can can work for certain people but there's a lot of us who are more introverted who just aren't comfortable in that role and I know when I've tried to put myself in that in that sort of lane it's disaster and I I feel uncomfortable my message is awkward you know all of that happens so I, I think part of the key is really just focusing on what what's your own personal call what's your own mission um, and to speak up when you have to so that your words actually have a certain amount of weight rather than being just a, a lot, you know, um, yes, there, there's the argument for the squeaky wheel, uh, you know, gets the oil, but there's also the argument for, for people paying attention to those who have actually something weighty and, and important to say when it's said. Um, so I, I think that that's something that the culture needs a lot more of. And again, it, it's, it comes with being trustable. Um, and, uh, you know, are you following through when you say you're going to follow through? Are you being a good friend? Are you being a good colleague? Are you um, doing all of those things that you would expect others to do and, and being a virtuous employee or, or colleague? I think that those are, are really the, the key pieces so that you, you can be heard because then your words will have weight when you speak up um, rather than just sort of fluttering frittering or flittering away. And as for finding um, my work, theologyofhome.com is the best place. Um, but it's, we, we have a, a news aggregate site that we put together every day for, for Catholic women to sort of um, help them feel less invisible in the culture um, because Catholic women are, there's 35 million of us and yet we don't have um, a lot of resources for Catholic women to sort of support them in their faith and journey, faith journey and their homes and work and whatnot. Um, and then we have our, our fun store, um, the Mercantile, where we sell, sell products on it as well. So that's the best place to go. Thank you so much. This has been very rich. And it's, I love when two introverts get together in a conversation <laughs> <laughs> and talk about, talk about communication. And, and you, uh, you, know, the tech, you don't have to become chatty Kathy to be heard. Mm -hmm. Amen. Well said. Yes. That is uh, that is a blessing for all of us. So thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. And I will see you on the next episode and have a great and wonderful day. Bye-bye.